Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Today I want to look at a New Testament story that I think is a beautiful description of what every single one of us go through when it comes to seeing and understanding Jesus. You know, at some point in our life, I would say most of us here today, most of us watching online, maybe not everyone, but we're here because we believe in Jesus. We're here because we believe in the way of Jesus. There's something about Jesus. We could even go as far as to say many of us are followers of Jesus. We're doing our best to follow his example, his life, and to live in the kingdom. But we all have different concepts. We all have different ideas of what Jesus is like. I could pull together 10 people who profess to be followers of Jesus, and I could probably get 10 different pictures of what God is like from those 10 different people. I'm not even saying necessarily that there's a wrong view. It's just the view they have at the time. Because how many know on your journey, our view should begin to change? How we see God will begin to change. Now, if you attend Faith City, you'll hear this on several occasions Probably just about every Sunday you've already heard it. We believed that Jesus is exactly like God. If you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. Jesus, we could say, is a reflection of God. But here's the thing, and this is the big question. I love to ask questions because when a question is asked, you have to start to think and maybe come up with an answer or at least a response. Here's the question. How do you see Jesus? I'm not here to say that the way you see Jesus is wrong. I'm just asking the question, how do you see Jesus? I took the liberty of putting some pictures together. I just went online and kind of had some fun with this. Look at this first picture here of Jesus. Now we see Jesus here. He's, he's knocking on the door. Anyone familiar with that one? You've seen that before, knocking on the door of a heart. That's pretty cool. We got what I would call the glowing Jesus. He's doing some kind of sign there, right? Look at this next one here. No, go back, go back. Go to the first one. There's, there's one before this. Did we not get it? Okay. Well, trust me, there's two more. Really good. <laughs> um, you know, we had one more of maybe like a Catholic Jesus with the heart. You've seen that with the thorns around it, things like that. None of those pictures are bad. These are all different views of Jesus, right? Is any, anyone familiar with these different pictures? Now let's go to some memes because everyone's seen the memes of Jesus. You know I had to throw this in here. So the next one, I like this one here. I'll just take a water, thanks. And he's winking. I'm not going to explain that to you. If you don't get it, you're not going to get it, right? This one I had to put up. I've seen this one several times. Anyone seen Rambo Jesus? Yeah, this usually it has some kind of saying, something like, you know, when he first came, it was with love, but now he's coming with retribution. You know, ever seen those before? It's like a movie, which makes sense because we live in the Western culture and we're all about vengeance and revenge. We love those type of movies. But how many know Jesus isn't a movie character? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So unfortunately, there is no Rambo Jesus. Jesus said, put down your sword. Come on. Anyway, I'll stop at that one. But I want us to look at this next picture. This is a really important picture to me. Has anyone seen this? See, I, the response. I mean, just about everyone. This is the head of Christ by Warner Salmon, and he did this in 1941. And did you know that this image is the most mass-produced image of Jesus in all of human history? 
Now, Jesus, or the concept of Jesus, has been around for more than 2,000 years. This was painted in 1941. In fact, over 500 million prints have been made of this painting, if you include coasters and coffee mugs and calendars and things like that, magnets. This is the most produced in all of history, which I'm sure Warner was like, all right. I mean, I wonder if he even expected that. I mean, I, I think... I like this picture. I, I've always been drawn to it for some reason. It has like, it's simple, right? There's a simplicity to it. Jesus is looking somewhere. Maybe the Heavenly Father's off to the side. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some wine and bread. He's getting ready to receive communion. I don't know what's going on. Looking off. You know, there's also a sense of mystery almost. Like you're not quite sure what Jesus is thinking in this situation. And... If you've grown up with this image or something similar to this image, this image shapes how you think about Jesus. And to be honest, in more ways than we could ever realize. For, for me, and tell me if you feel the same way, look, look at this for just a moment. There's, there's one particular feature of this painting that would really stand out to those who lived 2,000 years ago in the time of Christ. Anyone? His hair, okay. Any, anyone else? Getting closer. Yeah. I would say that it's the fact that Jesus is a white European, European looking man. No, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm just, did you notice he kind of looks like a dude you would see walking down the streets of Fenton? Well, maybe, maybe not, but I'm just, he'd definitely be at some of the concerts I go to. But, but what a, we, we get kind of like pulled into this idea of what Jesus may look like. And for this, and by the way, his impeccable hair. That's pretty amazing too. Now, I'm not saying this is wrong. Of course not. I just want us to see how powerful the mind is when it creates images of things. Here, Jesus is depicted as a handsome, white European man. Are you with me? I mean, it's clear as day. It may not be very clear to you and to me. It depends on the culture you've grown up in. But I'm telling you, to someone 2,000 years ago, they would have thought, that's what Jesus looked like? So in 2002, there was a group of New Testament British scholars and these forensic scientists who teamed up together. They did this tour of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and they actually got access to the skulls and the skeletons of people dating back to the times of Jesus. And what they did, based on these findings, and they even did these 3D scans of the skulls, they were able to put together what a typical Jewish man would have looked like in the time of Jesus. Now, I think their thought was probably, can we maybe come up with a better image that would reflect closer what Jesus would look like than that maybe, you know, or the contrast to Warner Solomon's painting from 1941. And here's what they came up with. Isn't that interesting? Now, let me clarify, this isn't Jesus. It wasn't like we found Apostle John's lost iPhone, somehow we were able to charge it, and he had some different, you know, pictures of Jesus. I'm sure if they had a phone, they'd be taking all kinds of, look, at where with Jesus, yeah, oh my gosh, they're after us, let's run, you know. Could you imagine some of those selfies on the boat in the middle of the storm? That'd be kind of cool. Hopefully it's waterproof. But you know, when you see this, what, how does it make you feel? Like, did it kind of make you go, Whoa. Because of the image that we have in our head. Now, I don't want to discredit, you know, Warner's 
painting. I think it's absolutely beautiful and obviously loved by many worldwide. But this is what an average man at that time would have looked like. About five foot, five, six, darker complexion in the skin, uh, a wider nose, coarse hair. Do you follow me? So here's a question, and I don't want you to raise your hand on this, but let me ask you this. Would you put this photo up in your living room? We, we don't have to answer. I just, I'm just asking the question. Would you put this photo up in your living room? And if not, why? Why is it that this picture of Jesus is less appealing to us, even if it's more accurate? Which really raises the age-old truth that how we perceive someone's appearance drives and shapes our assumptions about them. Now, we're going somewhere. Just stick with me. Because we're talking about how we see things. Many of us have a certain image of Jesus, and it's really hard for us to switch to a different image when it's presented to us. Do you follow me? It really calls out the ways in which we perceive each other in people. And if we were to be completely honest, we have to recognize that every single one of us comes to Jesus with preloaded assumptions and preconceptions about who Jesus is, what his story is about, what he's all about. And I think that Warner Selman's Head of Christ painting from 1941 shows us that perfectly. So this is why when some of us hear something that goes against the picture of Jesus we form. Now, these are just paintings. I understand that. But even when you pray... It's like we somehow try to form a picture of who we're praying to, don't we? If we're really, we really think about it. And so for many of us, depending on how we're brought up, the culture we're brought up in, Jesus may look one way or may look another. And so when you hear something that goes against the grain or the picture that we formed, it's hard to connect with that different idea. It's called cognitive dissonance. Like, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I can't really hear what you're saying. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know how you felt when you saw the pictures and the stark difference. I know when I first saw it, I was like, wow, it just kind of, it wasn't a bad thing. It just was like a, wow, I never pictured Jesus in that way. But in these moments, I believe that there's a humbling that must take place because If we don't allow who Jesus actually is to challenge our assumptions about him, then in those moments, we will remain blind to who he truly is. We can be a Christian, we can go to church, we can read our Bible, but we still can remain totally blind to who Jesus truly is. So here's the question. What does it take to have these blinders removed? What does it take to have these blinders removed? And that really brings us to the story of walking the road of Emmaus. I want to talk about that idea today of walking the road of Emmaus. I believe it's a story of how the death and the resurrection of Jesus can shatter the images and assumptions that we've had about who he is. And so in Luke's account, we have the execution of Jesus. Shortly after that, uh, we see in the story there's this empty tomb. They're trying to figure out where is Jesus, who stole his body, what's going on. And then we have this really interesting story about Jesus meeting up after his death, after his crucifixion, by the way, meeting up with two of his disciples, two of his followers who are on their way to to Emmaus. And I want to pick this up in Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. And behold, say behold. behold. On that very day, 
two of them, talking about the followers of Jesus, were going to a village named Emmaus, which was 60 stadia from Jerusalem. It's about seven miles. And they were talking with each other about all these things, say all these things, which had taken place. Now I want you to stop there for just a minute. What do you think they were talking about? These are followers of Jesus, right? I mean, we could only guess. But, but think about this. These men were men who decided to follow Jesus. They were men who sold at least a majority of their belongings to follow this Jesus. And they've spent the last maybe year or two with Jesus. We know this isn't one of the 12, but it's the, the outer disciples and followers of Jesus. They do mention a name. We'll see that in a moment. But they've spent time with Jesus. They've seen the healing. They've seen the miracles. In fact, within this week, they had actually spent uh, time with him celebrating Passover, which, by the way, was the most religious and political holiday of the year for the Jewish people. And most of them thought, it's about to go down. Jesus is the Messiah. Things are about to go down. We're going to see Jesus really begin you know, to bring his kingdom But even Jesus said, this is probably why they thought this, he said that his kingdom was right there at the door. He was telling people, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within you. There's something about this kingdom. In their thoughts, they knew what kingdoms were. And so they were waiting. Okay, Messiah is going to do something. But instead of that, that whole sense of change happening, Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his followers, he gets arrested, then he's brutally beaten and crucified. I mean, for them, nothing at this point has met their expectations of who you thought Jesus was and what you thought Jesus was supposed to do. Can you feel it? I say this often, and I think it's really important when we read scripture to try to put ourselves into the shoes of the individuals we're reading about. I want us to try. In fact, this is just a practice in empathy. We should do this in life. We should be able to sit down without talking over somebody and hear their story, whether we disagree with them or not. Because when you begin to hear that story and you begin to walk at least mentally in their shoes, maybe you'll get a different picture. And so I want us to feel what these gentlemen were feeling at this point. I mean, they were let down. And to top it off, it gets even more weird Because certain disciples are saying the tomb is empty. There's been sightings of Jesus. There's a possibility that he's resurrected from the dead. And they're probably like, what does that even mean? We saw him crucified. He's gone. And so I believe these two guys were completely confused, disheartened. And again, can you feel what they're feeling? And so as we look in the scripture for a majority of the disciples and followers of Jesus, the crucifixion of their leader, their rabbi, their master, their teacher, it completely shattered their hopes for what was to be. Even though Jesus had been trying to communicate to them on several occasions that this would happen, they had a different story. We could say they had a different picture or painting in their head of what Jesus was all about. We could say they had a certain set of driving assumptions of who Jesus is and what he was going to Jerusalem to do. And so he ends up on the cross. And for them, everything fell apart. The floor completely gave way. And so for these followers of Jesus, they had enough. 
They packed whatever little bit of stuff they had, and they're heading on this road to Emmaus. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, think about this. They're walking, they're talking, just discussing everything we just feel that. Jesus himself approached to begin traveling with them. Now, the next sentence I would think would be, oh my gosh, Jesus is here, he's alive. But verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. <laughs> what? I mean, they, I mean, they've been walking with Jesus for several months, but they didn't know who he was. Now, I want us to stop here because for me, this is the very center point of this whole story. The risen Jesus appears to them. He's walking with them. He's talking with them, and they don't recognize who he is. Let me ask you a question. Do they see him? Do they see Jesus? Yes. But do they know that it's Jesus? No. So they know there's a man walking, someone whom they've, they've followed for at least a year or two, but they don't recognize him. So, pretty simple statement, they can see but they actually can't see. How many of you have experienced this in your life? Every time something new comes across, you know, my ears, my eyes, when it comes to theology or understanding more about God, when it's something new, it's kind of like, ooh, I see it, but I don't quite see it. Do you get it? This is such a powerful story. It, it really speaks of how we are in our human nature. And then he says to them, this is, I just think Jesus was pretty cool and pretty funny. He says, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? <laughs> they came to a stop, it says, looking sad. Some translations said, just head down. And look what, look what one of them says. This is Cleopas. He says to him, are you possibly the only one living near Jerusalem who does not know about the things that happen here in these days? I mean, now, I just want you to, they're frustrated. They're let down. Their expectations haven't been met. And this dude starts walking with them who is apparently from the same area, from Jerusalem. He's like, hey, what you guys talking about? And they're like, dude, do you, have you been here? Have you been present? Have you been like in a hole? And Jesus says, this is funny, what sort of things? Like, what you talking about? They said to them, those about Jesus the Nazarene who proved to be a prophet, mighty indeed in word and in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. Look at this. This is what I want us to get. But we, say we, were hoping, say hoping, that it was he who was going to what? Redeem Israel. Indeed. Besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. In other words, our hope was that he was going to redeem us. He was the Messiah. But man, listen, three days have gone by. We saw him crucified. It's over. But Jesus is walking with them, talking with them. I want us to just think about this for a moment. At this very moment, they showed their hand, didn't they? Listen, they don't know it. We have the privilege of knowing 2,000 years later because we're reading the story, but they just exposed what was blinding them. For them, the crucifixion of Jesus is not a victory. Do you see that? For them, the crucifixion of Jesus had shattered everything that they had hoped for. See, they thought that this mighty prophet would redeem them through his powerful words and actions, but instead, he died on a cross. 
And listen, nobody saw this coming. I don't blame them. I'm not hating. I'm just saying I'm reading the story, and they didn't see Jesus. All I know is they were so downcast, they, they never saw this coming. But the thing is, they didn't see it coming, even though Jesus tried to explain it to them. And so they were thrown off by these events over the last week or so. Which, again, it shows you how powerful our mind is. Right? He tried to explain it to them, but they still could not see Have you ever met with someone and you're having a conversation with them, maybe stating something that's completely obvious to you, maybe like you have a little fire about it, a little zeal, and you're talking to them, and it's like it falls completely on deaf ears. They're just not getting it. Why? Because they have a different set of beliefs and assumptions than you. They have a different picture. They have a different painting in which they're viewing internally that doesn't line up with your view and your picture. This is a really powerful truth. And this has helped me in life when when people are talking from their perspective and how they see things, sometimes I have to go, okay, you know what? Take the picture down for a moment. Try to place theirs up and see where they're coming from. It doesn't mean that I, I just bite down, you know, hook, line, and sinker on everything that's said. But the very least I could do, again, by the example of Jesus, is listen. Hear people. Really hear. Not, not... Because here's what we have a tendency to do. As people are talking, we're formulating our response. We're not hearing what they're saying. Sure, your ears might be like hearing it, but you're not internalizing. You're not really hearing the heart of that person. I'm just as guilty as this of this. And so we're already trying to formulate an answer and our opinion and our, our you know, part of the argument or debate. Why do we debate so much about stuff? I've said this, I don't know how many times. Listen, when you get on Facebook, I've, it would be a miracle if I ever saw someone state an opinion, someone else got in and said, you're wrong, this is the opinion, and right after that, they went, thank you, I see the light. In fact, it just goes on and on and on. That's why I'm not on Facebook anymore. It's just too much. We've lost the art of debate and communication, but we've really lost the art of listening, of hearing. And it's all because of the mental picture that we've drawn of any situation. But, but here these men are, they see the crucifixion of Jesus as a failure. But let me ask you a question. Did Jesus redeem Israel through his crucifixion? Yes. yes. But think about this. The very thing that they think makes Jesus a failure is in fact the very thing in the story that makes Jesus the victorious Messiah. And they can't see it. You know what's cool? Jesus never gets frustrated with them. He never gets frustrated. Frustrated? Is that a word? He never gets frustrated with their opinion. I mean, he's right there. He could have been like, I am so offended, you don't even see me. He didn't. Why? He understood they had a different picture of what was supposed to happen, and that Jesus just didn't match the picture. These are disciples who followed Jesus. So what does the redemption mean? If Jesus was supposed to be the redeemer and they thought he failed, but we now 2,000 years later look at the gospel story and think, no, he did redeem, what does redemption mean? Any ideas? Class discussion. What's redemption mean? Okay, Bob back. Anyone else? 
Come on, Bruce, you got to have something. We put him on the spot. Anyone? Come on, Tom, what's redemption mean? Okay, redeem made new. We're getting close. You know, when I think of redeemed, I think of pop models. You're like, wow, Pastor, great. That's really spiritual. But, but for me, when I was a kid, you know, pop cans and bottles, I've told you before that, like, I would go through on a Saturday and just, I mean, people throw these, these things of value into the ditch. And I'm like, what? You know, I get 20, 30 of those things. And I can go to the corner store and get, like, the most incredible thing ever, candy. Right? I'm eight or nine years old. On the east side of Flint, they just let us wander around back then. Parents didn't care. It's like, as long as you get home before the lights go on, you're good. But we would collect these, these cans and these bottles. Why? It, there, was, there was worth to it. Why? I could redeem that can or that bottle. You ever had a coupon? You could redeem? You know, buy a Whopper, get one free, like, hallelujah. This is God speaking, right? Or maybe, maybe you, you get a coupon for redemption. You can get like a free appetizer when you go to a certain restaurant. That's kind of the idea that we think about with redemption. But when I really look at this deeper and dig deeper, when I think about the word redemption, especially in the light of the gospel story, I think about the fact that redemption, it takes something that's horrible and tragic or sad, and it transforms it into something beautiful. It takes a situation, it, it takes people in, in their, their most tragic moments, horrible moments, blind and sad moments, and it, and it transforms them into something that's beautiful. This is a very common theme throughout the entire Bible, the idea of being redeemed or redemption, right? So, so here's a little Bible trivia for you. Bruce, you can't answer this one. Where in the Bible does the word redeem first appear? Anyone? You're not in trouble if you get the answer wrong. Does anyone know? Ruth, okay. Anyone else? Yeah? Everyone's embarrassed to talk. You know, I'm too embarrassed to talk. I'm done. No, I'm just kidding. Exodus 6. Exodus 6. Anyone heard of Moses? Anyone heard of Israel? Anyone heard of Egypt? It's the whole story. In fact, Exodus 6, 5 through 7 says, Furthermore, this is God speaking, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you as my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the labors of who? The Egyptians. Now, to us, we're like, yeah, that's a cool story. Listen, you weren't enslaved for 400 years plus. For them, this was like, what? Like, what the what is going on? Like, we... All we know is seven days a week, we are making bricks for the Pharaoh. We've had, you know, generations die before us, and all we know is slave labor, seven days a week. So I think it's interesting that God, through the law, commands them to take the seventh, the seventh day off, the Sabbath. Why? He's trying to teach them that life is not about working 24-7, that you have to have a rest. And so that seventh day of the Sabbath is so important, even to this day, to those who practice Judaism. 
So in the first story of the Bible, where we see the act of redemption, it's taking people who are slaves from oppression into the freedom of becoming God's people. And really, when you think about it, this is the Bible idea of what redemption truly means. To be freed from the slavery or oppression of something and brought into and made into people that belong to God. And if you follow the trail even further, the New Testament, it brings us to a place where we can actually see and take our rightful place as sons and daughters. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of redemption, isn't it? That's what we live in today. That's why I stand here before you today. That's why any of us do what we do when we practice and walk out the kingdom. This redemption thing is for real. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this. This is powerful. I was just going over this this morning. It hit me like, like a ton of bricks. When he says, you are no longer slaves, but sons. Now, I've heard that before, and I'm like, okay. And for some reason, I always had this picture of, of like, They're slaves to God? But no, he's saying you're no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer slaves to a false identity of who you thought you were. It's just like I've said that Jesus, if you look through his whole ministry, you know, he he wasn't pointing out the sin in someone. He was pointing out the son. And that includes you two daughters, by the way. It's this constant reminder that you are a son and you are a daughter. We're freeing you from any bondage, any addiction, any sin, any wrong thinking, any false belief or lie about yourself or God. I want to free you from that and bring you to the rightful place that's yours as sons and daughters. Now back to the story. We see this from the lens of 2024. We can see this story play out through the crucifixion of Jesus. But to these two Jewish men who have an understanding of what it means to be freed from your oppressors, I want you to catch this, this hope ended with the death of Jesus. For them, redemption would not come through Jesus. Does this make sense? Because in the Exodus story, the oppressor is who? Egypt. But in the New Testament story, the oppressor is who? The Romans. See, we got we to back up. We're like, well, man, they were with Jesus for how many years and they didn't see the spiritual connotations of the kingdom? No, no. They thought that the Messiah was just like Moses. He was going to free them from their oppressor. In the Exodus story, the oppressing ruler is Pharaoh. But in the New Testament story, it's Caesar. And if you follow down the, the, the levels of authority, there was another guy named Pontius Pilate. Right? The one who did what? Sentenced Jesus to death. So in their minds, the rulers won. Jesus can't be the redeemer because Rome still rules and Jesus is dead. Are you following this? See, for the story to go correctly, according to these Jewish Jewish men, Jesus would have freed them from Rome and Caesar and Pilate. So the fact that he didn't, to them, it meant he failed. I mean, think about this. This was Passover weekend. They, they were all excited, like, man, we're celebrating Passover. It's about to go down. And then some went down, but it didn't meet their expectations. What's the story tell? It tells that they weren't quite seeing what Jesus was saying because Jesus had a completely different view of the story than these men do. He had a different picture of how things should be. 
In fact, he says something that I believe they probably would have heard as his followers in Luke chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, goes against the grain of everything that the world represents and would see as normal. Look at the starting verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who are abusive to you. I'm already like, sometimes you just already check out. Yeah, that was great for 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time, but it doesn't apply to now. It's easy to check out, isn't it? Because these words are powerful. Let's go on. Whoever hits you on the cheek, anyone remember Rambo Jesus? Well, this is what Rambo Jesus, who, by the way, isn't Rambo Jesus, says. Offer him the other also. Anyone feeling the heaviness yet? And whoever takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Jesus, what are you doing, man? Look at this. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. He's saying even people who've lost their identity, they do the good things, right? Look at this. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But, say but. Here's Jesus messing again. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself, uh-oh, here's the standard. I'm getting Holy Ghost goosebumps right now. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. That's how I want to live. Not easy, is it? I love the statement. It just popped out to me. When you love your enemies, you do good, and you lend expecting nothing in return. He says your reward will be great, but look at this. He said you will be sons of the Most High. He's not saying at that point he'll go, okay, now you're my son. What he's saying is now you're reflecting your true image, my image, because this is who I am. This is how I function in life. See, Jesus has a way of thinking, and I want us to understand this because it goes against the grain of everything that, that we've been taught and our culture says, but he has this way of thinking that the way that evil is truly confronted and defeated is by doing good, by suffering sacrificial love. He's saying, this is how you live under God's reign. This is how you live out of God's kingdom and in the kingdom of God. And then he goes into Jerusalem and get this, he walks his talk. He's innocent. And he never speaks a word. He lets himself be beaten, bruised, put on a cross. And his only response is, forgive them. And I love that the writer puts the following words, for they know not what they do. See, Jesus understands the pictures that we paint. He understands the way that we see things. 
And sometimes because that picture is drawn in such a way and hung in such a way and it's got all the detail in such a way, we can't see any other way. And so Jesus, looking at those people who just murdered him, says, forgive them. They're looking at the wrong picture. They just, they don't understand. Talk about empathy. But see, we even see it in examples of, you know, the martyrs of the faith who would be put in these arenas with lions for sport to, to watch people being chased and eaten. And, and it's many accounts say that they would just stand there and they would say, I forgive you. And they'd sing, sing hymns. What? They got it. They understood it. Did Jesus believe that he was redeeming Israel when he was being crucified by the Romans? Yes, he did. In fact, again, that's what Jesus was trying to get through to his followers. Even on the night of Passover, he takes the symbols of Exodus, the bread and the wine, and he reshapes them around what is going to happen. He says that these symbols point to his broken body and his shed blood. He's trying to tell them. He's trying to communicate this to them. So, so Jesus did believe that he was going to accomplish Exodus. But get this. He was going to do it, not by becoming Moses, but he was going to do it by becoming the lamb. The lamb of the Passover. Which is a whole different way of handling a situation. And I'll be honest, it doesn't matter how many times I read this story. It still makes me go, what? I'm just being totally honest. What? It just it doesn't make sense. Because then what it does is it starts to challenge your own beliefs, how you see people, how we have a tendency to take sides. I'm not saying we can't have an opinion. You know, we're in a political year. God save us all. No, I, I say that not trying to be funny. Like, seriously, I, I see brothers and sisters in Christ who should be joining together in kingdom, and they can't because they're on separate sides of a stinking aisle. And that's not the kingdom. That's not how the kingdom functions. It's not how we operate. How is it that evil is defeated by self-sacrificial love? I mean, this is just as crazy as saying something like, if you really want to save your life, you'll lose it. Or, you know, if you want to become the most influential, you must first become the slave to everyone. Which, by the way, those are quotes from Jesus as well. I'm trying to get us to see something. Jesus has a different view of life, a different view of the world, a different view of how our actions should look as kingdom people. But again, Jesus thought differently. Jesus had a totally upside-down view of the world that the ultimate way in which God would confront and defeat evil was through the suffering death of the Messianic King. And don't forget, Scripture tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This was God's idea. 
This was God saying, hey, you can do whatever you want. I'm going to show this is how life really works out. This is how you have true reward in life, is even when people are coming at you, even if people kill you, you still forgive and you love. I'll be honest, it's even hard for me to say. Because not every response that I have on a daily basis is this, in this manner. But I will say that I'm getting to the point where it's getting easier to recognize when those old thought patterns and ideas come out and you go, whoa, 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 this isn't kingdom. This isn't how Jesus would conduct himself. Scripture is filled with the idea that God's ultimate purpose, listen to this, was not to destroy his enemy, but to die for his enemy. And that's where the story has always been heading according to Jesus. God binds himself to humanity through the incarnation, through Jesus, and the death of Jesus is not a tragedy. It's actually the way that humanity is redeemed. Think about this. Jesus took took all the consequences of our selfishness and our sin and the evil of human history, and he allows it to defeat him so that he can defeat it through his resurrection from the dead. And I heard someone, I don't know who it was, but they told the story. And it was like the perfect example. Because I, I still in my head was like, how, how do you defeat something by letting it defeat you? Has anyone ever seen Men in Black? Yes. It's okay if you see movies. We're not, we're not judging you. Men in Black. Do you remember the end of the movie when the bug alien comes off the ship and Kay's standing there? And what does Kay allow the bug to do? Eat him. So death and sin, the enemy, consumed him and ate him. And we're thinking, it's over. It's done. Come on, you guys are getting it now. You got a goosebump? You're like, I can't believe men in black has taught me scripture. But what's Kay do? He kills evil from the inside out. When I heard them like, come on, you can't use a Hollywood movie to, to describe scripture to me. But Jesus allowed sin and death to consume him but then he destroyed it from the inside out at any point he could have called legions of angels now now, this terminology legion it's a Roman term it wasn't like angels would come down and they'll swiftly bring him away no no legions come to war In other words, Jesus could have said, all right, I've had enough of this. I'm not going up on the cross. Let's go, boys. Slaughter them all. No, I'm serious. Slaughter them all. Avenge me. Because have anyone seen any medieval, like, movies? What do they do? They avenge their king. They're not like, hey, guys, would you please? I mean, he's actually, he's a good guy. No, no. Swords come out, catapults, flaming, whatever. I mean, it's just like it's on now. And Jesus refused to do that. Why? He wanted to set an example. But guess what? Evil did not have the victory because Jesus defeated it from the inside out. I like how one person said it. He said, loving your enemies is really bad advice if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. (laughs) Why? Because your enemy will kill you and then you're just dead. See, that's where the resurrection is everything in this story. It means that everything I thought I knew about the world and myself and God, I have to rethink. 
everything I thought about the kingdom and Jesus have to be rebuilt through the resurrection. Back to our story as we bring this to a close. And then he says to them, you foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the things the prophets have spoken. And he goes on to explain, it was necessary for Christ to suffer these things in order to come into his glory. But I want to jump down to verse 29. They're walking along. He looks as if he's just going to continue. And they're like, no, no, no. We urge you, come in, sit with, with us and eat with us. This is so good. And so he stayed with them. And it came that when he had reclined at the table with them, listen to this, that he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it. And he began giving it to them. Now hold up. Wait a minute. If we turn back like two pages, they're at a Passover meal. What does Jesus do? He takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it. It says at that moment, they knew it was Jesus. I mean, they're on a three, four hour walk with this guy and don't know. They recognize him when he takes those elements and he breaks them. Come on. And he gives it to them. They said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scripture to us? There was this familiar thing. Listen, this isn't, it isn't like that burning inside. It wasn't heartburn, by the way. I don't think they got that back then quite as much. But there was something within them whenever Jesus spoke, and they were feeling that feeling. They must have felt like, because there's all these, there's confusion, there's letdown, there's expectations that haven't been met. And then this guy's talking, and they're feeling this familiar feeling, and then all of a sudden he breaks the bread, and it's like, oh. and then what's funny is that then he disappeared. Come on, Jesus. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gives it to them, and their eyes were open. Listen, it's only when a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, humbles themselves. We leave all the baggage and the assumptions of what we think we know about Jesus and the world and ourselves at the door, and we allow the scandal of the cross to come to us personally. His name's Jesus, and give himself to us. The heartbeat of the whole story is that God defeats evil and sin and confronts his enemy by dying for his enemy. So here's the real hard question. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment as we bring this to a close. I want to ask you this question. Who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? Some of you instantly uh, a picture popped up in your head. Because that's really where we are, it seems, as a culture. If you just take a look at the landscape around us, we see this constant, constant outpouring of hatred and vengeance in our culture toward our enemies. We think that we win when we, quote unquote, kill each other. Maybe not physical death, but I defeated you with my words. I had the better side of, the, of this debate. I set my things right. I got my vengeance. But again, the scandal of the cross of Jesus is telling us something about ourselves, something about God and something about others. Somehow we assume that God is for us, but he's against our enemy. 
And unfortunately, as we see in the story, you can look up here, the scripture is exposing how shallow and superficial that thinking is. Too often we forget that we are all contributors to why this world is the way it is. And so rather than look externally, maybe it's time to look internally, not to go, oh, woe is me, I'm horrible, I'm sinful, I'm wretched, to just say, no, 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 no. If my reflection or if my actions aren't a reflection of the truth of who I am, in other words, reflecting how Jesus is, then I got some work to do. So it's saying, Holy Spirit, I'm open to this. Jesus, I need healing in my life. I'm not seeing things correctly. I have a painting that I just can't seem to take down. So in conclusion, God loves his enemies and he will defeat evil and sin in our world through suffering, self-giving love. Now, again, what that is supposed to look like in our day-to-day life, our way of thinking, God help us. I, I don't know how to answer that question for you. But let's make no mistake in who Jesus thinks his enemy is. It isn't a people. It isn't a person. It's evil. Will you stand with me? I just want to pray as we get ready to, to dismiss today. But I just want to ask another question. How does your road to Emmaus end? How does it end? Now, I don't believe that this is just a, a one day or a few hour journey. I, I believe this is a lifetime journey that we're on. A journey of discovery. Being humble enough to discover the way that Jesus truly looks, to really seeing what Jesus is up to. And here's the great thing. He does it all through you and through me. That's the beauty of the gospel. We get to participate. It's not a spectator sport. We get to be Jesus to those around us. And so what this will do, I guarantee it will start to challenge your responses to people will start to challenge how you view and how you see others. It's just how it works. It's not a bad thing, but whenever it starts to kind of rock our paradigm, when things begin to shift, it's never comfortable, but that's okay. And guess what? I haven't arrived. (laughs) I haven't completely fulfilled this yet, but I'm on the journey. And I know this, that the Jesus way is the best way. I've learned that a soft answer turns away wrath. I learned that my job in this world is to be a peacekeeper. Any way I can to try to keep peace in a situation. Doesn't mean I always am successful, but I know in my heart of hearts it's the right way. It's to love people. It's to accept them. It's to receive them where they are. It's to hear their story. It's to learn the practice of empathy. Even if I don't agree with them, that's okay. What I found is even if I don't agree with people, if I hear their story and I learn how to empathize, I actually can strike up friendships with people who have no agreement in certain areas of life with me. And sometimes they teach me things about myself I could never see. Wow. Someone you consider an enemy one day may teach you something about yourself you never saw. But on the other hand, with that relationship, they may start to see things and see light in certain areas that they never would have seen if it weren't for you displaying the kingdom in your life. What am I saying? Don't burn bridges. Don't put up walls and barriers to people. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for scripture. We thank you for Holy Spirit. We, we know, Holy Spirit, that you live within us. You're always speaking to us. You're directing our path. May we become more aware of your presence in our life. May we become more aware and even grow to higher levels of our thinking. Like Paul said, to, to put on the mind of Christ. Jesus, you thought it's such a high level of consciousness. It was so much further than, than what we really could understand. But as we tap into that and see you as our source of life, we begin to think higher. We begin to think deeper and see the bigger picture. Just say this with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. I can see that you have a plan for me. I want to fulfill that plan. So I'm open to hear your voice and to make the changes that are necessary to see things correctly. If I have to take down a painting and have you create a new painting, do it for me, Lord. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Did you receive that this morning? For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.